Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. For those of you who weren't raised Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, or if by some happy chance you weren't otherwise instructed with the wildly problematic story of the biblical prophet Job, let's begin with the briefest possible synopsis. Job lives a charmed and faithful life. He is, we are told, blameless and upright. One day, God and Satan get to talking. God brags about Job's goodness. Satan argues that Job is only good because his life is so sweet. Satan says he can turn Job against God in a heartbeat, kill his livestock, kill his servants, kill his ten children, torment this innocent man, and force him to recant. God says, okay, but don't kill him. So it all comes to pass, the full catastrophe. And Job continues to believe in God, continues to pray to God, believing in his goodness and mercy. And as if this isn't already the worst story ever, Satan says he'd like another go at it, and God, intent on winning this wager, tells Satan to have at it. Satan then attacks Job's health, afflicting him with terrible sores all over his body. I will spare you the gory details of his anguish. But Job remains faithful. Satan is vanquished, and God, victorious, rewards Job by restoring his health, providing him with twice as much property as before, new servants, and new children, replacement children. It is noteworthy that Job's wife is nameless. I searched everywhere for a poem I heard once that was written in her voice. It was probably censored as blasphemous. She is speaking to God. I have not forgotten her final chilling line. What have you done with my children? This morning, I'm going to shred the line of thinking that Job's patience is exemplary and his suffering redemptive. The story of Job is an excellent case study in significant places. Unitarian Universalist theology departs, I think I should say swerves away from more traditional theology and offers us something life-giving in its place. You've heard people refer to the patience of Job. Our faith tradition says, if you are the target of someone's misguided need to prove themselves, please do not 
be patient. In this case, what we want for you is impatience. We don't say patience is a virtue without qualifying that statement. Instead, we pray for patience and impatience, for the wisdom to discern when it is time to wait and when it is time to leave. By my lights, it was more than time for Job to leave and find himself a loving God. You have heard people refer to the redemptive nature of suffering with Job as a teaching tale. Redemption is the act of being saved from sin, evil, or error, the action of clearing a debt. Yes, suffering is part of life. But I do not recommend glorifying it. It has no inherent value. Suffering for the sake of suffering is not redemptive. It does not make us more honorable. Our faith tradition teaches the preciousness of life, the primacy of love and kindness, the gift of joy. If we're choosing suffering because we think it will please God, we too need a new God. What kind of God tests people's faith by destroying almost everything they cherish? God does not kill children. I spent a couple of hours in Provincetown earlier this week and walked past the inn that was owned by Preston Babbitt, co-founder of the Provincetown Aid Support Group and my board chair when I served the congregation there in the mid to late 1980s. I adored him. What came to mind was a morning at our church there when Preston rose to speak during the parish highlights. His partner, Rogers Baker, was dying. Preston would soon follow. He began by acknowledging the terrible cost of that pandemic not just in human life, but in joy. The virus was stealing so much, he said, but we must not let it have everything. He shared that what he was learning was that we have to remember joy. Preston acknowledged that AIDS had foreshortened the horizon, but while we were alive, it is so important, he said, to practice joy. I can still see him standing in his pew in front of east-facing window, the sun pouring in on him, bathing him in light. He was already an angel. And I felt then, as I feel now, that his words, his directive, were a life-changing gift to me and to everyone at the service that morning. Preston wasn't saying that suffering is redemptive. He was saying that suffering just is, and that our mission is to honor whatever life we have left and to be joyful. Some of you will remember that years ago, my friend Nula Murphy was driving home one dark summer night in Santa Fe when a young man 
shot out of a side street on a motorcycle with no running lights. Nula didn't hit him, but he crashed into the back of the passenger side of her van. She never saw it, but she heard it. When the ambulance arrived, the crew was very grave. His life was hanging in the balance. Someone called the lawyer. The lawyer said there would almost certainly be a lawsuit and that Nula was to speak to no one. We stayed up all night praying. Nula was pregnant with her first child, a boy, and she couldn't bear the idea that she might in some way be connected to the death of another mother's son. In the morning, she said to me, I have to go to him. She didn't care what the lawyer had said. She had to see him and she had to speak to him even if he couldn't hear her. There was no talking her out of it. We stopped only to buy a spray of irises. Astonishingly, when we arrived at the hospital and found his room, he was sitting up in bed, surrounded by friends and family. He looked horrible, but he was alive. Everyone looked up as we darkened the door. Stepping inside, Nula said, I'm the one that was driving the van. Suddenly, it was silent. Cradling the flowers, she went to him. His people parted. Nula opened her arms, and he reached up his arms to her. They enfolded one another in a long, tear-soaked embrace. There was no lawsuit. When we suffer, we are more deeply connected to everyone and everything. If we're paying attention, if we remember that we are never alone when we suffer, it can open our hearts. This is what it means to make meaning of suffering, to ignite our compassion, to forgive, to insist on kindness, no matter what. Mother Teresa said, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. If Job's story is not a good illustration of reasons to be patient, and if we conclude that suffering has no inherent merit, what can we make of it? I love the way it sends us off looking for new ideas about a higher power. Some of you have concluded that there is none. Here are some other possibilities. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, says, my religion is kindness. Kindness is a good God. Some of us go with God is love, also biblical from the book of John. Love is God. God equals love. We can substitute the word God with love. And then there's this. Rabbi Harold Kushner 
reeling at the death of his 14-year-old son, wondered why bad things happened to good people, went on a search and wrote a book that changed his life and the lives of thousands of people, including mine. One of his first conclusions was that there's often no connection between how we live our lives and what happens to us. I say there is no such thing as deserve. Unless we believe in reincarnation, the transmigration of the soul, and karma, the law governing cause and effect, which says that the sum of all our actions in all our previous states of existence will determine our fate, then we cannot possibly believe that everything happens for a reason or that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. What doesn't kill us doesn't kill us. And whether or not we make sense or meaning out of what happens to us is entirely up to us. Rabbi Kushner concluded that God is benevolent, but not all-powerful. Evil happens and God rushes in, often in the form of those who help, to comfort the afflicted. He said it is the result of pain, the result of pain, not the cause of pain that makes some experiences of pain meaningful and others destructive. Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a Swiss-American psychiatrist, pioneered studies in dying and created the five stages of coming to terms with death, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. She taught that they don't necessarily happen to us in that order, they're in no way tidy, and most losses, not just deaths, will bring on the stages. Dr. Kubler-Ross's friend, David Kessler, co-authored one of her last books on grief and grieving, in which they applied the five stages to the grieving process. Again, denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. And then something terrible happened. David's 21-year-old son died of an overdose. In the wake of this unimaginable loss, he says, I faced a decision that everyone faces in grief. Is this just hideous, I asked myself, or can it be part of my son's legacy and meaning? the meaning that he comes with me to help people. Accepting loss is essential, but then what, he wonders. To live on after tragedy requires more than acceptance. And so David Kessler added a sixth stage of grieving, meaning-making. The meaning isn't in the death, he says. It's in me and what I do with it. He is speaking of bearing witness to those who have gone before us by carrying forth the gifts they bequeath to us and carrying them forth into the world. The pain isn't gone, he says, but it's balanced more by love now. When I enter a workshop or a lecture, 
I feel my son's presence. I'm thinking about Job and his poor wife and how the story not only gives us a terrible God, but also misses the opportunity to teach us something about loss, grieving, and meaning-making. Can we salvage anything from it? My friend and colleague in Rockport, Reverend Susan Moran, told me that biblical scholars now agree that the first two chapters of Job were originally a standalone story. The next chapters were a later edition by a different author. Here's the final passage at the close of chapter two, what just might be the end of the story. When Job's friends heard about all these calamities that had befallen him, each came from his own house, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namatite. They were together, they went together to go and mourn with him and to comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could not recognize him, and they broke into loud weeping. Each one tore his own robe and threw dust into his hair. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw how very great was his suffering. And they sat down with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. How beautiful is that? A perfect model of opening the heart of compassion to another's suffering and accompanying them in living beyond loss, weeping with them, sitting with them in silence, staying with them to anchor them to life. Sometimes, even in the midst of suffering, there come unexpected gifts. Let's close with this story from the anonymous author of the website, comatology.com. She writes, in the wild, chaotic grief that erupted when my father died, the first task I grappled with was calling his friends and our family members. My cousin Carrie asked where she could send flowers, and I was so bulldozed by heartbreak, I didn't realize the right answer to that question was, thank you so much, but no flowers. Instead, I said the only thing my muddled brain could come up with, I told her to send them to Dad's place. A couple of days later, when I sat down to write his obituary, having consulted with my siblings on the topic, I wrote, flowers gratefully declined. But it was too late. Carrie sent an extravagant, gorgeous bouquet of flowers with a card conveying how much she had loved her Uncle Joe and how much she would miss him. By then, my brother had taken all the tables out of Dad's apartment, she says, and the only place I could put the vase of flowers was on a stack of cardboard boxes on the floor, surrounded by other boxes and piles of Dad's stuff that we were sorting through. I spent a week alone in that apartment. I felt terribly alone in my grief. The days were filled with doings and the phone rang often, but at the end of the day, my siblings went home. I'd go outside and stand on the little concrete balcony, staring at the ocean and listening to Glenn Campbell sing, Honey, Come Back, over and over. 
And every time I went back into the apartment, Carrie's flowers would catch my eye and tell my broken heart, I care. I'm with you in this crazy grief. And so I concluded that sometimes, in lieu of anything else, send flowers. Beloved spiritual companions, may we send flowers. Sit with those who suffer, bear witness to the lives who have gone before us, and so make meaning. Let us choose purpose, open a heart of compassion, pray for patience and impatience, insist on kindness, insist on love. Even in the midst of suffering, and especially then, let us remember joy. Amen. And now, for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. John Murray, who lived from 1741 to 1815, brought universalism from England to America. His biographer believed Reverend Murray had been inspired by the spirit of these words, go out into the highways and byways of America and give the people something of your new vision. You may possess only a small light, but uncover it, let it shine, use it in order to bring more light and understanding to the hearts and minds of all people. Give them not hell, but hope and courage. Do not push them deeper into theological despair, but preach the kindness and everlasting love of God. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and carry it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.